Keep your Bibles open. We will walk back through this uh, passage that you've just heard uh, read. We'll walk through it together. As we move forward in our study of this wonderful gospel account from Matthew. And as you can tell, we've, we've only three chapters to go at this point, and we are quickly, quickly approaching the crucifixion of Christ. So events will begin to rapidly happen, and uh, these events that we're looking at this morning, uh, I thought we would look at them under the categories of beauty and betrayal. Beauty and betrayal. So let's, let's pause for a moment, and as we do, and ask the Lord to help us as we look to his word together. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we bow our heads today, and, and today is a special day. It, it stands out for many of us, especially uh, who have, uh, have so much uh, history here at, the, at Gracie Pond Baptist Church, and and this special day of Memorial Day. And beyond that, our, our loved ones, that those that we've uh, honored through a video presentation, but even more so all of those who have gone before us as we kind of set aside today to, to particularly uh, make, make it a special occasion for the ones who have gone before us and, and, and left, so many of them, left such a precious and powerful witness to the church and to the gospel and, and to Christ. So it is right for us to, to honor them today. And, and in doing so, Lord, we do what we do every Sunday. We, we gather because we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It is truly because of Christ that we have so much hope and so much assurance and certainty for those who have gone before us and, and for ourselves when, when that day comes when we stand before you. So there's nothing really more precious in the world than the gospel. There's, there's no one more precious than Christ because it is through him and it is through what he's done for us that we have this precious, precious gift called eternal life. And we begin today, Father, to see the, how events began to unfold that would take Christ, your Son, our Savior, to that crucial moment in time where he pays for our sins. And so we know, Father, that looking to Christ can be absolutely life-transforming can be absolute such such a a such a renewal and a dramatic change of who we are as people from sinner to save that that you describe it as things like being born above or being made entirely new and so for some of us gathered lord this morning that's exactly what we need to look to Christ today and to see how worthy he is, how precious and powerful he is, and to be made new. 
And for some of us, Father, today who are in Christ, there's just, all of us are in different places in our walk with you. We have different struggles. We have different issues. We, we have different things going on in our hearts and our lives. And 99% of those things going on, Lord, they're, they're things that we need to do to follow you and to honor you and to glorify you in our lives that for us seem too monumental, too difficult, too hard, too overwhelming. Or we've neglected them or we ignore them or we justify them or whatever it might be. So wherever we are, Lord, we, we really need a, a tremendous work of God in our hearts today. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. And so, Father, we look to Christ as he looks to the cross. And we ask you, Lord, to work a perfect, powerful, glorious work in each of our hearts. Transform us into more and more of Christ. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Beauty and betrayal. So chapter 26 opens at a rapid pace. And it, it opens with these words. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. And all these sayings, of course, is referring to the, the previous three chapters in Matthew that we've studied together. Jesus has been teaching in these final moments, in these final days, some of the last few things that he wanted to make sure that his disciples, his followers understood and could grasp. In chapter 23, he, he spoke to the crowds and the disciples together, and, and he, spoke of the, he spoke about hypocritical faith. He spoke about how religious activity and, and religious rules, they, they will never save us. Trying to chase our way into heaven, trying to make our way into heaven by our record, by our achievement, by our goodness, by our morals, will we'll never save. In fact, those things only blind us to our need of a Savior. When we can look to a list of goodness in our lives and, and, and feel like we're justified, we're good enough, then we don't understand how, how we're all fallen and all sinful and all corrupt and all broken and all in rebellion against the Lord and need salvation, need a Savior. And that was the issue with the, with the scribes and the Pharisees. In chapter 23, Jesus speaks to them seven woes. He he gives them every opportunity to see the truth. In chapter 24, then, he gathers his disciples and he teaches them how to recognize when his second coming is drawing near. That's chapter 24 of Matthew. So, so as his first coming is drawing to a close, Jesus begins to point them to his second coming, to begin thinking and begin expecting his return. 
And so then, in chapter 25, as we've just recently studied together, he goes from pointing them to his second coming, then to emphasizing that since his second coming is absolutely certain, that they must be ready, be prepared, be expecting his second coming. In other words, live every day like Jesus is coming tomorrow. Live every day like Jesus is coming tomorrow. What, what a dramatic difference it would make in our lives if we took these words to heart. So we could sum up all these sayings this way. Don't, don't trust in your goodness, trust in Christ. As the, world, as the world grows darker, it will be increasingly difficult to live for Christ, but take courage He's on the way. So be ready. Be ready. And you know, those words, all these sayings, those words are even more applicable in our day than when they were first spoken. His coming is so very closer today than when he first spoke these words to his followers. And then he turns his attention from his second coming back to his first coming and his coming suffering and death. At this point in the timeline is only a couple of days away. So the first thing that I want us to notice in the passage before us in these 16 verses, first thing, let's see the sovereign Savior and the plans of men. The sovereign Savior and the plans of men. In verse 2, Jesus begins to speak of his, his coming suffering, his coming passion. And this is the first time, this is the fourth time, the fourth time that Jesus has spoken of this to his disciples, preparing them, predicting his coming suffering and death. But this time he puts it in a time frame. He says it's going to happen during the Passover celebration. So again, in this moment, Jesus is here, we see, two days away from, from Passover. And he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified at that time. Remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost. After the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, 23. Peter declares in that great sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, Peter understood the death and the resurrection of Christ after they took place, that's when it sank in and he fully began to grasp what had just taken place and why. But Jesus understood all of that before they took place. In fact, he understood those things even down to the timing and the unfolding and how it would all take place. Because he is the sovereign Savior. He's in control. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is God. You see, this was God's plan to redeem 
sinners. And Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the great triune God, God in the flesh, knew the plan for salvation and willingly gave his life that we might live. This is what Christ is preparing the disciples for. The Son of Man is going to be delivered and he's going to be crucified in just two days. So we see the sovereign Savior. But now in verses 3 through 5, we see the plans of men. We see these chief priests and and the elders of the people. And and what are they doing? They they are plotting and they are scheming and they are are getting the approval and, and, and the stamp of approval from the high priest. They want to arrest Jesus by stealth, don't they? Undercover. It said the chief priests and elders of the people gathered and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. Imagine that, talking about God in the flesh now, and we're going to take him by stealth. He's not going to know we're coming. It's, Matthew puts this plotting, this scheming, right after Jesus says exactly what's going to happen to make the point. Jesus knows what they're talking about. He, he knew about it before they began to plan it. They're going to take him and kill him. So they thought they were devising the perfect surprising scheme. It, it's all secretive. Nobody knows. They're going to keep this among themselves. And they'll take Jesus by surprise and they'll take him by force. And little did they know their, their sinful secretive plans to kill were actually part of God's larger plan to save. They were simply working out their evil scheme in the grander scheme of God's plan to redeem sinners. They won't take Jesus by surprise and they won't have him killed by force. The sovereign Savior will simply lay down his life will simply give of himself to save his people from their sins. Remember, way, way back in our study in Matthew chapter 1, that's exactly what the angel told Joseph. Remember? When he prepared Joseph because Mary had shown up and she was pregnant, so the angel came to Joseph and he said, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins sins that's exactly the plan that's unfolding and we see the sovereignty of christ over these evil schemers is is demonstrated in their very own planning as they plan as their plan fits into god's larger plan of redemption They're going right along with what God has already foreordained and planned. And when their plans get kind of out of off the path of God's plan, it gets brought right back into God's plan. 
They knew Jerusalem would be filled with people during the, the Passover, and I suspect they were thinking, we don't, we don't want to start a riot. We don't want to get in, in, the, in the middle of, of some kind of uproar over this. There may be a lot of followers, a lot of friends of Jesus in town, so, so we don't want to get anything started, so we don't want people resisting uh, what we're trying to accomplish here, so, so let's just wait until things are back to normal, until Jerusalem empties out again, things are, are back to to a, a slower pace. But you see, Jesus was to die during the Passover as the final Passover lamb. What, what is Passover? Remember, that comes from the celebration of God delivering his people from Egypt. Way back in the book of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, living in slavery under the hand of the Pharaoh. And so God, it comes the time that God is going to display his power and his glory and his might over all the gods of Egypt. And we have these 10 plagues in Exodus culminating in this final plague that by this act of God's might and power, the Hebrews will be released. So the people of God were to take a lamb a lamb without any blemish, and they were to slaughter that lamb, and they were to take some of the blood of that lamb and put on the post, the, the doorway of their homes where they dwell. Because that night, the Lord was going to go throughout all of Egypt, and every firstborn throughout the entire land of Egypt was going to be struck, was going to die. This was judgment upon wickedness, judgment upon evil. But when the Lord came across a dwelling where there was the blood of the lamb present, he would pass over that home. And there would be no one struck in that home. There would be no judgment upon that home because there was blood applied to that home. So in that way, the unbeliever would be judged and the believer would be saved. That deliverance from slavery in Egypt was a picture of deliverance, our deliverance from slavery to sin. Jesus is our Passover lamb. All who are in him, cleansed by his blood, all who have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, has his cleansing blood applied to their hearts, their lives, will escape the coming judgment of God upon evil and wickedness and unbelief. So Jesus had to die during the feast. But that wasn't the plans of men, was it? But we see the sovereignty of the Savior in the events even of his own death, right? Because these priests and elders were planning to wait till after the feast, and then enters Judas. And Judas has this great scheme, he has this great idea. And he provides them a way that they can go ahead and enact their plot under the cover of darkness in a place where the crowds won't be gathered and they can initiate and go ahead and take control and they simply couldn't resist the open door. You see, the Savior is sovereign over the plans of men. 
So Christ is worthy. In the sovereign plan of God, he is going, the, the Savior is going to give his life to redeem all those who would trust in him. So he is absolutely worthy of all of our worship. And that's the next passage, isn't it? So the next thing we see in, in our study together is the beauty of worship. The beauty of worshiping the Savior. Here in our text, it's because he's on his way to give his life to save us. Now we worship him because he did give his life to save us. And so in this next scene, Jesus actually again speaks of his coming death. He speaks of his burial, but not in the context of his suffering. Now he speaks of this in the context of an act of worship. You see, the sufferings of Christ should promote within us great worship of Christ, great adoration of Christ, great love of Christ. That's what we see here in the act of this woman who Matthew doesn't even mention because it's not about who. It's about what she's doing and why. Matthew says a woman came up to Jesus and, and anointed him by pouring a flask of very expensive ointment on his head. Over in, in John's gospel account of this anointing, he gives the monetary value of this ointment, which comes to about a year's wage for a laborer. So when, when Matthew says this is very expensive, he's talking about a, a year's salary, a year's pay. John also tells us in his account that, that when, the, when Matthew says the disciples speak up here, John says it was, it was Judas who was speaking on the behalf of the disciples. He was kind of the spokesman, like, like sometimes Peter would, would say things on, on behalf of everyone. Judas was saying this on kind of behalf of everyone. He said what they were thinking. But John gives us a little insight into Judas's motive. And it wasn't, he wasn't really concerned about the poor. He was really concerned about seeing all of that money in one place at one time, and I'm not getting a share of any of it. That was his concern. Now, how can I make this a spiritual concern? Uh, it should have been given to the poor because if it was sold to be given to the poor, guess who holds the money bag? <laughs> Judas. <laughs> so if it was sold and given to the poor, John said he used to help himself to some of the funds from time to time. That's what was underneath such a spiritual concern to help the poor. Sometimes we cloak our true motive under spiritual language, don't we? Well, that's what was happening. His real intent behind this spiritual claim. So notice, notice then with me, as you heard this passage read, notice that the disciples, listen to what they call this, this act of, of worship. They said when the disciples, in verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That means they, were, they, were, they took the, the high horse, so to speak, and, and they said, why this waste? Waste. 
She had just given all that she had to Christ. For Christ. Notice that what the disciples called a waste, Jesus calls what? A beautiful thing. Now, it wasn't the amount to which Jesus refers. He, he wasn't saying here that only, only really very expensive things count. That's not what he was saying. Only the, only the large things that, that gets everybody's attention, those are the beautiful things. That's, that's not what he was saying. He was simply referring to the act itself that she would do this. So he was referring to the act and, and to the heart behind it, the, the motive behind it. Why would this lady spend such an exorbitant amount in, on this one-time act? Listen, you, you can only conclude this. As she poured out this very expensive ointment upon Christ, you can only conclude that she must have thought he was worth it. He was worth that much adoration. And in fact, that's what worship kind of means, doesn't it? Worth-ship. You see, what we think is worthy is what we worship. It's what we give our time to, our attention to, our money to, our affections to, our priorities to our planning to, our future to, our decisions to, the things that we think are worthy of those things. And when we do that, we demonstrate what we worship or who we worship. She demonstrated that she believed Jesus was worth it. And we do the same with the things that we Give. In other words, the disciples here in this moment had a better idea. Now remember in Luke 21, Jesus, Jesus observed, he was watching people give their offering, and, and he observed the rich putting in some of their offering. And remember, he, he observed a poor widow, and she came in, and the Bible says she put in two small copper coins. It was pennies. Pennies to the dollar, right? And Jesus, observing that, said to the disciples, you know what? She put in more than everybody else. What? She, she put in more. Because heaven's value of the dollar is not ours. Heaven's value of the dollar is recorded from the heart, not the economy. And Jesus said she put in more than all of them. And he explains why. He said, because they, they, they gave kind of a portion out of their abundance, but she gave all she had. So what's the point? She believed God was worthy. She believed that worshiping God meant that much. That down to her last couple of copper coins, God, worshiping God was worth it was worth the last thing she had. That, that's, that's what's going on with this lady here in this scene. She believes Jesus is worth the, the best that she has. Now the disciples, boy, 
Boy, what a time, right? We're talking about events that, that are happening, and it's very close to Jesus laying down his life for these very disciples, and, and he's told them now four times what's getting ready to take place. What a time. I mean, foot in the mouth, right? And, and, and we, we all do this at, at times, right? We, we knee-jerk. We knee-react. We, we're not paying attention. We don't really know what's going on, and, and we think we got to speak into it. And here's the disciples. Evidently, they say this in the hearing of the woman, right? Because Jesus says, why are, you bothering the, why are you bothering the woman? Don't bother her. So they're being critical, right? And they say, this, this, this should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, this is a good lesson for all of us who are in Christ. Anytime, anytime that you do something for Jesus, you know what's coming, right? Anytime you do something with Jesus, more than likely somebody close by is going to criticize it. They're going to have a better way of what you should have done, how it should have been done, what you shouldn't have done, what you rather should have done. We need to remember on the other side of that not to be these disciples, right? Because Jesus is looking on the heart. He's looking on the, on the act. Or she's not doing it the right way. She should have done something else. No good deed goes unpunished, right? And Jesus corrects their criticism. But he does so. Watch how Jesus does this. He's such a master with using words to, to get at the heart and to the point of what's going on. He's not dismissing the poor. He's not saying don't care about the poor. His point is not to, not to take away attention from the needs and ministry to the poor. His point is my death is just about to happen. The poor will always be here. We, we will always have opportunity to minister to those who have more needs than we have. That there will always be an opportunity to bless others, to minister, to serve, to help. Because there will always be poor. There will always be people around us that are less fortunate than we are. We'll always have those opportunities. But Jesus is getting ready to leave. Physically leave. You won't always have him. I won't always be here like this with you. Don't criticize what she's doing. This is of massive importance what she's doing. In fact, Jesus says what she has done by pouring this ointment upon him was preparing his body for his coming burial. She was doing something that the disciples who had lived with him for three years hadn't even thought about doing. And he's already told them four times, I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to be delivered. I'm getting ready to be crucified. You see, her intent to worship and the act itself was a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. In fact, it was such a remarkable act of worship that she would give so much in such a little time it was so significant, Jesus declares, as the gospel advances around the world, 
in days and years and decades and centuries to come. What she has done will be told in her memory. Matthew writes that down. John writes that down. And we're still talking about it. 2,000 years later. When, we, when you talk about all of the events that happened leading up to our salvation in Christ on the cross, the story of this lady's act of worship is told because it was so meaningfully significant. So let me make this point for us, and let's let this sink in. True, sincere worship of Christ is far more meaningful and significant than we realize. Your private time with God every day is far more eternally significant than you realize. Our time together, when we, when we gather and we are here together, singing together, praying together, studying together, uniting under Christ in the gospel together, is far more significant and meaningful than we realize. Whatever activity of worship we're doing, singing God's praises, giving of God's blessings to us for gospel ministry and gospel advance, studying God's word privately, studying God's word together, or simply living our lives day by day as acts of worship for his glory. We were created to worship God. That is our very purpose. And the, and the act of worship, when we do, when we set aside everything else that gets in the way and, 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 and pulls us to worship them or worship this, when we remove all of that clutter from our lives and singularly focus on Christ and his worth, when we worship the Lord, Christ says... That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Some would say there's better things to do with your time. There's better things to do with your money. There's other pressing needs. There's, there's other matters that you have to, that you have to fix first. And, and all of those things are distractions and criticisms from keeping us from the priority and purpose of our life is to worship the Lord. Jesus said, this, this is a beautiful thing, and it'll be told of her as long as the gospel is advancing. So we see the beauty of worship, and then lastly, we see the, the ugliness of betrayal or the darkness of betrayal. So we go from one who is giving Jesus her all, her best, her everything, to one who is selling Jesus out. Judas goes out, he agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now that has a monetary value too. A flask of, of alabaster ointment, uh, uh, it has a monetary value. About a year's wage. 30 pieces of silver has a monetary value stated in the book of Exodus. And in there it says, if, if, you, if, you, 
if your slave is, is accidentally gored to death by an ox, and imagine, imagine how common that had to be to be included in the Word of God for instructions for God's people. I mean, evidently there were a lot of wild ox walking around. So he says, if your slave accidentally gets gored to death by an ox, if, if you own the ox, you owe the master of that slave 30 pieces of silver. That's how much that life was worth in the economy of those days. The price of a slave. This woman in the previous text believed Jesus was worth the best that she had. Judas thought Jesus was worth nothing more than the value of a common slave. In other words, in Judas's heart and mind, right here in this text, he would rather have 30 pieces of silver than Jesus. So it should really give us pause then in a, in a time to self-reflect and evaluate our spiritual lives and our hearts and maybe ask this question, what's our silver pieces? What is it or who is it in our life that we think is of more worth than Christ? Why did Judas betray Jesus for such a meaningless amount? I mean, he was one of the 12, right? He, he lived with Jesus for three years and he observed all of the wondrous miracles and heard all of the truth being proclaimed. He knew enough about Jesus to know who he was. Why did, why did Judas trade Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Why sell him out? Well, this passage doesn't go into the heart of Judas, does it? But if he will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver after spending so much time with Jesus, and right here when things are getting so close to Christ being crucified, you can kind of surmise, can't you, that this, this Jesus wasn't, the Jesus that Judas wanted him to be. This Jesus didn't turn out to be the Jesus that Judas wanted. So he gave him up. This, the Jesus that Judas wanted was going to go into Jerusalem and take over. And if he was one of the 12 then, and he was in charge of the money, of the finances, imagine being in charge of the finances when Jesus is in charge of everything. That's the Jesus I want that can give me the benefit I'm looking for. The place of standing that, that I'm looking for. But instead... Instead, this Jesus is not talking about entering into Jerusalem to take over. This Jesus keeps talking about going into Jerusalem to be delivered up and crucified. That doesn't fit the Jesus I want. That doesn't fit the Jesus I'm looking for. 
that, G- that Jesus doesn't, doesn't fit Judas' plan. And yet, that Jesus was the only way to save Judas. But he traded him for 30 pieces of silver. So let me ask you, have you left following Jesus because he didn't turn out to be the Jesus you wanted him to be? He didn't, this Jesus didn't fit your agenda. This Jesus didn't fit your plan. This Jesus didn't sign on to your path. And so you traded him for silver pieces. Something in your life that you think is worth more than Jesus. You see, the thing about our silver pieces and the thing about Judas's silver pieces, they didn't get him far, did they? In fact... He doesn't even spend them. They spend him. You see, the thing about our silver pieces, the things or the people in our life that we think is worth more than Jesus, so we trade them. These silver pieces, they will bring momentary pleasure. They will bring momentary pleasure. 30 pieces of silver will jingle in your pocket for a little while. But they will cost us They will eternally cost us everything. But when we let go of these silver pieces and embrace Jesus, now that will momentarily cost us. That will momentarily cost us everything, but that will eternally be our joy. So there's a, there's a choice before us with silver pieces in Jesus, temporary pleasure or eternal joy. You see, time ran out for Judas, but if you are here today, time hasn't run out for you. Come to Christ. Come back to Christ. He is worth more, far more than whoever, whatever we've traded him for. You see, there's a, there's a beauty in worship and an ugliness, a darkness to betrayal. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in these next moments as we consider your word in our own hearts and lives, that you would help us to see the The value and worth of Jesus is worth everything. Everything. To worship him as king and Lord and savior and God and creator. Redeemer of our lives. Help us, Father, to be able to see the the consequences of silver pieces in our lives. Help us to be able to see that, 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 that Jesus, in our eyes, he, he might not be the Jesus that we figured him to be or wanted him to be or think we needed him to be, but he is the Jesus that sets us free. 
He is the Jesus that redeems us and reconciles us to the Father. He is the Jesus that in him we have the hope and promise of eternal life and new creation and a clean slate and clean record before God. He is that Jesus, and that's the Jesus we need. And if we could see him, we would worship him. Father, would you do that great work in our lives as believers drawing us into a deeper affection of Christ where we spend everything like this woman to worship him? And if we are apart from Christ today, would you allow us to see that those silver pieces in the end won't satisfy? That the Jesus we want Jesus to be won't save So do a work in us, Father, to draw us to you wherever we are in our relationship with you. Draw us to you, Father, and your name and your glory will be praised. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.